0: We're heading downstairs. Do me a favor and silence your cell phones. Turn them off. If you could, that would be wonderful. We're going to try to be as distraction-free as we can be in this service. So if I cough or sneeze or have to blow my nose, I apologize. I've been battling a cold throughout this whole week. Maybe you can hear it. Well, to this morning, we are again in Genesis chapter 18. So you may turn there in your Bibles. We're looking at, really, verses 20 through 33. Very recently, in Genesis, in the preceding chapter, Abraham had taken upon his body the sign of covenant with God, circumcision. And then just a short time later, maybe a matter of days or weeks, God reappears to Abraham another theophany. And God comes pronouncing these, uh, pronouncing a a salvation and a judgment. A pattern that that remains throughout all history when God visits humanity, when there is a a theophany that salvation and judgment come together, blessing and curse come together. Now, last week in chapter eighteen, we looked. Closely at the elements of salvation that came with this theophany. And this week, we'll begin to focus on the elements of judgment that come with this theophany. But even mixed within the judgment is found a theme of of salvation. That salvation is directly linked to the justice of God. And we're going to spend a lot of time camping upon the righteous justice of God this morning. God is going to reveal in this passage the interplay of his justice and his mercy and an interplay that forever proves his righteousness. And in, in this dialogue between God and Abraham, God is going to prove a, or provide rather, a pattern of righteousness, a pattern of justice for his people for all time. That's what we're going to see today. This morning, amazing things, glorious things. But let's begin reading our passage. I'm going to back up a little bit to verse 16 of Genesis, Genesis 18, so follow along with me. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have, uh, to, whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous f- fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, who I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 45 are fo- or 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Father give us eyes to see what you the, the treasures that you have for us to see in this passage this morning. We certainly are given glories of justice, of mercy, of righteousness here. And so I pray that these glories would permeate our hearts that we would desire to see these things coming out of us uh, and coming out of our society or out of our world. That your righteousness and your justice and your mercy would fill us and our world. Oh, indeed, would that not be your kingdom come? So may we see your kingdom in this dialogue between you and your friend Abraham. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we saw earlier in chapter 18, Abraham demonstrated humble, caring, eager hospitality towards his three visitors, towards towards the Lord Adonai and two angels that appeared like men. After assuring Abraham and, and then especially Sarah God's promises, these three set off on the road headed towards the valley of Sidim. That's where the That's where Sodom and Gomorrah and a few other cities were located, in the valley of Sidim. And ever the hospitable servant, and I would imagine likely wanting to spend as much time as possible with his lord, Abraham walks some distance down the road with these three heavenly visitors. Then, as verse 16 says, they stop and they look out towards Sodom. They look in the direction of Sodom. Likely they're on some prominent point in the road. Now, remember the area of Hebron is on a high plateau that separates the the Dead Sea with the Mediterranean Sea. And you can see Hebron kind of in the the left side of the image there. It sits at about 3,366 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea in the Valley of Sedim is about 1,300 feet below sea level, which makes Hebron about 4,700 feet higher than the Valley of Sidim, than where Sodom and Gomorrah is located. So when Abraham and the Lord stop and they look out towards Sodom, maybe they cannot see Sodom itself, but they can certainly see the Valley of Sidim. And as Yahweh, his two angels, and Abraham together look towards Sodom, the Lord brings Abraham in on his plans. Disclosing what he is about to do. I said it last week God is not like a man, and his mind doesn't change, and he doesn't learn new things, and he's not uncertain about what he is going to do next. Rather, he makes himself appear like a man in this passage. And he reveals in this appearance that he has chosen, that those who he has chosen are his friends. And like friends, he is willing to hold counsel with them. He is willing to, he invites them in, even inviting Abraham in to hold discourse with him. And it's amazing grace on display as God allows Abraham to speak to him in this way. And even though he didn't have to, the Lord discloses his plans. Let's look at that again in verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So, in these verses, we're given two details that set up the whole passage that we're focusing on today. Two details that set up the whole passage. One, Sodom and Gomorrah's sins have resulted in an outcry that the Lord has heard. He's heard this thing. And then the Lord has come to verify that outcry, the claim of the outcry. So we're going to take these two things one at a time, get a little more context that surrounds them. Verse 20 says, The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are very grave. A more literal transition, or translation there might render, Their sins' weight is exceedingly heavy. That word grave, it's a connotation of heavy and burdening weight. And because of such a weight of sin, the Lord Adonai has heard this outcry. So it's an outcry. With an outcry, there's an implication of injustice. Somebody is suffering wrongly. Perhaps he has heard the outcry of the oppressed or the injured or those grieved by the city's great wickedness. And perhaps it's a cacophony of all of these things outcry, reaching so loudly to the ears of the Lord. Now, let's be clear. God was not sitting some far off heavenly throne, and the outcry of Sodom's sin finally became so loud that he's willing to pay attention, and he says to himself, well, I guess it's time to do something about that. No, God is not like a man. That's how we work. This is not how God works. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. Adonai was entirely aware of every single sin in these cities and every individual sinning within them, and he needed no one to tell him of the injustices being committed there. He is omniscient. And yet we are given this image where God looks like a man not to show us that God is like a man, but to show us that God, knowing of this injustice, is aware of it, is wanting to act upon it, and will not allow evil and injustice upon the earth to go unpunished. Hosea chapter 7 verses 1 and 2 says, "...they deal falsely. The thief breaks in and the bandits, the bandits raid outside." But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. God remembers all the evil of the wicked. Every lie, every injustice, even as Scripture testifies in many places, even every sinful thought. God sees it all. And so when he sees a sinner, a wicked person, they are surrounded by this swarm of sin by this great heavy burden that is dragging them down into the abyss and God cannot help but see that wickedness. And so it is in the valley of Sidim. When he sees Sodom and Gomorrah, he sees that swarm. He sees that their sin is very grave. The Bible describes for us what exactly is the weight of sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. What is about to drag them down? What swarms around them in black wickedness? Ezekiel 16 verses 49 and 50, we read, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, the daughters being the other cities in the valley of Sidim, she and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the Valley of Sidim were arrogant, gluttonous, lazy, and selfish. If the poor and needy were desperate for help, They turned away. They didn't want to see that. They turned away. They regarded their own comfort and their own pleasure as more important than those who were suffering and the injustices that they were suffering. This is as anti-God as you can get. This is anti-Christ, the spirit of anti-Christ, as you can get. God did not step down from glory, or rather, did not God step down from glory laying aside the glories of heaven to sacrifice his very own life to rescue the poor and needy like us. 1 John three sixteen and 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Indeed, the love of God did not abide in Sodom and Gomorrah, but only this wicked, arrogant love of self. And adding to the already heavy weight of pride and gluttony and laziness and selfishness, the passage in Ezekiel says that these cities did an abomination before the Lord. Ezekiel doesn't come right out and say what that abomination is, and he didn't need to because The Jews knew exactly what he was talking about, what was the abominable sin of Sodom. Remember back in Genesis 13, 13, we read this. We read, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The men of Sodom were wicked. It's hard to see it in the English, but in the Hebrew, it it's very clear. There's a high degree of precision being used here. The men is not a generic term, just for people, the people of Sodom. No, it's using a specific, uh, sp- specific grammar to say the males, essentially. The males of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. And again, Ezekiel referred to an abomination perpetrated by Sodom. So the men, the males of Sodom are engaging in some type of exceeding sin or abomination. I think we know where we're going. Leviticus 18.22 You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So using scripture to interpret scripture, we know exactly what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Rampant homosexual behavior. Old and New Testament affirm homosexuality is an abomination before the Lord. And what was true for Sodom is true for us. The Bible leaves no room for a gender spectrum, and there's no such thing as sexual fluidity, In the clearest of terms, God denounces these things as abominations. God created male and female to gloriously bear his image and freely express their sexuality within monogamous, lifelong male-female marriages. Next week in chapter 19, we're going to see just how abominable things had become in Sodom and Gomorrah and the repulsive practices that were going on there and the weight of their wickedness is heavy maybe the weight of our wickedness is heavy such wickedness cares little for its victims we'll see this also next week and so there's a, there's little surprise that this outcry has reached its outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah has reached the lord And so he has come with two of his angels to see for himself. Once again, God did not need to travel to Sodom to figure out its sins, to find out what was really going on there. He's revealing something about himself. He's revealing something about his moral law, about his justice. In verse 22, two angels leave. They leave the Lord and Abraham to go check out the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So these two angels are going to act as two witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, we read, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So when God sends two witnesses, it's not to discover the evils perpetrated in the Valley of Sedim. It is to show that he is a just judge, that his judgments are good He is not capricious. He does not fling judgments based on his unpredictable whims of preference. That's how tyranny works. And so if we see government governing by preference, we know that we're dealing with tyranny, not justice. No, by sending these witnesses, God demonstrates that his judgments are verifiably just verifiably just. And we come to chapter 19, we see the angel's experience, we see what happens to them and we realize that God didn't need God didn't need to know those things. He knew it. That's a testimony for us. That's a testimony for Abraham. Sodom and Gomorrah were verifiably undeniably overflowing with wickedness and God is just in his judgment. But even before the angels, you know, they, they took off, but before they get to Sodom, Abraham knows what they're going to find. The reputation of Sodom was well known. So immediately he thinks of the righteous that might live in Sodom, immediately thinks of his nephew and his nephew's family, Lot, that do live in Sodom. Verse 22 So the men turned from there and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. And so there's this this dialogue that begins. The Lord speaks with Abraham after his two witnesses have taken off, headed down to the valley of Siddim. The Lord doesn't go with them, though he could have gone with them. It's like he didn't actually come to see for himself what was going on in Sodom. Maybe he came instead to have this conversation with Abraham. So he remains. He allows his friend, Abraham, to stand before him and intercede for the righteous of Sodom. And here Abraham is truly embodying the covenant that he was called into. Abraham is embodying the covenant with God. Looking to extend blessing to others. Verse 23 now. Suppose there are fifty righteous when said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So here we see Abraham acting as mediator. Mediator of the covenant as he intercedes for this wicked, abominable city. We see him again acting as the rescuer of Lot. We see Abraham approaching his creator with a boldness only faith can provide. We see Abraham setting a model for God's people for all time. We see these wonderful things about Abraham. But this episode is not really about Abraham. This is about Adonai, the righteous judge of all the earth. See how Abraham rests his appeal on God's righteous justice. And he knows these. He knows God is righteous, and he knows his justice is righteous. In Psalm 19, as scripture testifies, we read Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are all your rules. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Righteousness is, simply put, Rightness before God. It is being correct as God judges it, as God sees it, and it emanates out of His own person. It's perfection according to God. And therefore, if God (coughs) is righteous in such a way, His laws are perfect. His laws are just, perfectly just. And so, according to the justice of God, Abraham knows that the wicked must be destroyed. The wicked have have allied themselves with evil. They, They reap corruption throughout all of God's good creation. They exist as contradictions to the image that God has placed within them. And they offend His awesome Holiness. And even though the Lord has not rendered his judgment, he has not told Abraham here what is going to happen to Sodom. Abraham knows the evils of Sodom, and he knows that God's justice would demand that the city be wiped off the face of the planet. But justice also demands... That God separate the righteous from the wicked. Not wholesale destruction, but the righteous within it must be spared if you are a just God. Psalm 145, we read, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. So God preserves the righteous and he destroys the wicked. And Abraham places his faith in the righteousness of God, and he calls for justice, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. Far be that from you. Such a thought rightly repulses Abraham, justly repulses Abraham. Abraham's appeal is also pulling on another thread of God's righteousness, another attribute of his righteousness, something inextricably linked to justice, mercy. So look how this works. Abraham asks, if 50 people are found in the city of Sodom, God, would you spare the city? In other words, if there are 50 righteous, then spare all the rest, spare all the wicked for the sake of the 50. Have mercy on them. And at no point is Abraham here trying to define who is righteous. He doesn't say, God, I want you to save Lot." Or here are my qualifications, Adonai, for the righteous. He doesn't argue with God over certain individuals. He wholly and completely trusts that Adonai knows who is righteous and who is wicked. And he will not make a mistake. There will be no mistrial. God's righteousness is perfect, and therefore he will perfectly judge who will be spared and who will be destroyed. So you see that in Abraham's argument. He, he knows that whatever judgment God renders, it is just. In every way, the righteousness of God is the bedrock of Abraham's appeal. And in verse 26, the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. That's God's righteousness and his justice and his mercy in a sentence. He's just to destroy the wicked. He is supremely merciful to spare the wicked on behalf of the righteous. Like like, uh, the brother of Christ, James, wrote, mercy triumphs over judgment. The Lord needs no arm twisting. He does not seem like he is put in a hard spot here. And he, out of obligation, says, All right, Abraham, have it your way. No, Abraham's appeal is perfectly in line with the will of God, with God's sense of justice and mercy. If 50 are found, God will spare everyone in Sodom. This reminds me I was thinking about it while we were singing actually. This reminded me of of when Jesus says, "Ask whatever you wish in my name and it will be granted to you." There it is. He's not saying, "Make there be 50 people righteous in Sodom and therefore spare it." He's saying, "If then spare and Adonai says, "Yes, I'll do that. That is good. That is just." Now, let's be careful. Once again, Abraham is not changing the Lord's mind. God already knows the exact number of the righteous that are in that city, and he knows exactly what's about to happen to them. God does not change his mind. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or he has spoken, and will he not fulfill it? He will. God is not changing his mind as he speaks with Abraham. Instead, God is revealing his mind for his people, for all time, for us, simultaneously revealing these greater depths of his righteousness and his justice and his mercy. Yes, God is righteous in all his ways. he's ready to withhold judgments, to pour out mercies, to equitably divide the righteous from the unrighteous. He prefers mercy to triumph over justice. Judgment. God is perfectly just. And he brings Abraham in to participate in that justice. So that it's not just God executing his judgments and here we are subject to them with no choice as his people. No, he brings us in to his judgments, allows us to participate in them, to intercede To proclaim, and we'll talk more about that later. How gracious it is for God to bring us into his counsel like this. But fearing that fifty might be too large a number, knowing, Abraham began stepping down the proposed number of the righteous. Let's read this step down. Look at verse uh, starting in verse twenty seven. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord who I am. But dust and ashes. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, "Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Sometimes the repetition of passages like this might strike us as comical, but there is this point that's being driven home again and again and again abraham demonstrates great boldness doesn't he when he asks to lower this number from 50 to 45 and his his boldness that's not ma- motivated in any way by pride you see him say who am i but dust and ashes He knows that he has no right to ask. He knows his position before God. But there are these two things that are motivating his boldness. One, though he is but dust and ashes, God has brought him into covenant relationship. God has made him his friend. And second, Abraham is feeling this great sense of compassion for his nephew. He knows isn't making right decisions. His compassion isn't for the wicked. Their injustices cannot be swept under the rug. Their wickedness cannot go unpunished. That is not justice. Abraham's compassion is for the righteous, that they would be saved. If there are 45, would you save them? And his profound compassion, it emboldens him to ask, Numerous times, the the almighty judge of all the earth to lower the number of the righteous, to bring it down, bring it down, even down to 10. Commentator Everett Fox writes, Without this story, Abraham would be a man of faith, but not a man of compassion and moral outrage, a model consistent with Moses and the prophets of Israel. It's important for us to be people of faith, and compassion, and moral outrage. Because we are among the prophethood of all believers. And each time Abraham asks for a lower number, the Lord grants Abraham's request once again. What awesome grace is on display in that back and forth. Grace towards the wicked, that they would be spared for the sake of the righteous, even if ten righteous people are in that city. He's going to save Everyone, or he's going to spare everyone in the city. But even more amazing is the incredible grace God that God allows Abraham to speak with him like this. That He brings him into this council. What right does a living pillar of dust and ash have to question the Creator of the universe? Not so long ago, Abraham was a wicked moon god worshiping pagan. And then after following God to the promised land, Abraham's faith falters and he chases lesser promises down to Egypt. And while in Egypt, he abdicates his role as husband protector. He lies about his wife. He makes his wife lie. And he creates this scenario where Sarah is taken as a sex slave. And then later, out of impatience and ungodly reasoning, Abraham commits adultery with his servant to force God's promise. A man of dust and ash, indeed. Indeed. What right does he have? How gracious our God to lift Abraham from the dirt and to call him a friend and to hold counsel with him. What grace to give ear to Abraham and ready to spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous because Abraham has asked. But I wonder if you have thought, is it even possible for there to be a righteous person in Sodom? Who is righteous? We read it from the Psalms last week. We know it from Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous. No, not one. Only God is righteous. But as we saw in God's elective purposes last week, God chooses the counsel of his own will. To pick some from the wicked and call them friends. To make what was unrighteous, righteous. To make what was dead, alive. To make what doesn't, and these, and, and, and makes covenant, makes covenant with them. And these that he chooses, that he makes covenant with they trust in that covenant and they trust in this great work that God has done, then they are saved, then they are righteous, then they will be spared from the coming judgments. What grace. What grace. Abraham continues to lower the number and every time he does, his appeals become shorter and shorter. Stops asking at 10. I wonder why he stopped at 10. What's that number about? It seems that he he stopped because it wasn't really about the number. And he he didn't know, apparently, the precise number of righteous within Sodom. But he realizes, I think, Abraham realizes it doesn't matter what the number is. The Lord always will spare the righteous. And clearly, he's showing that to Abraham right here. He will always spare the righteous. His judgment will always be just. His mercy will always be perfectly dispensed. Additionally, if even ten cannot be found in Sodom, I think Abraham knows at this point, as we should know, that if ten cannot be found there, then what good is that city? It deserves its judgment. It is truly and entirely corrupt, and its judgment is just, its destruction is righteousness, it is righteous, and, and that is precisely what we'll see next week in chapter 19. There will not be ten who are found in Sodom. And judgment will come. And it will burn. And yet there's this other city slated for destruction, Zawar, that is spared. Because of the righteous within it. It's an amazing twist to the story. We'll see it next week. Look at verse thirty-three. The Lord went his way, and he had finished speaking to Abraham. He finished speaking to Abraham, and he, Abraham returned to his place. So the entire passage, we need to remember again and again that God is not learning new things; He is not changing His mind. He is revealing His will, and He is delivering a pattern for His people. Theologian Bruce Waltke writes this. I think is an amazing quote. The Lord investigates accusations thoroughly, ensures two objective witnesses, involves the faithful in His judgment, displays active compassion for the suffering, and prioritizes divine mercy over indignant wrath. That is our God on display in Genesis eighteen twenty through twenty through thirty three. So that is who God is. That is. That is his righteousness. Now, he has made us righteous. He has clothed us with his own righteousness. So, therefore, he expects the same from us, people of God. He expects the same from us. So, if an, for instance, if an accusation were to arise, do not take it on face value. Right? Unlike the cancel culture of our day, God has given us a pattern that we are to follow of thorough investigation. We need at least two corroborating and objective witnesses before a judgment is delivered. Where compassion is warranted, we should eagerly and freely dispense it. We should always desire that people experience mercy over judgment. I think if many of us were in the position of Adonai here in this discourse, we wouldn't have even gotten to 50. We'd say, no, it's gone. They've offended me. Burn it. That is not what God delivers to his people. That is not who he is. This pattern of justice must mark our lives. It is how the wise should live, should be, and we are called to be wise. And so let us work to see this pattern inform the justice systems not only of our lives, but of our land. We want to see this justice alive and well in our land. Let us be like Abraham, pleading the case of the righteous, or you might say, the innocent, that they not be treated like the the wicked and the condemned. So if you see an injustice, work to right it. But even more urgently, even more urgently, let us proclaim how God's mercy triumphed over judgment. How it once and for all has triumphed over judgment. The wickedness in our heart was grave. You know it. You feel it. You felt it. And it was a weight driving you down into the eternal abyss. But Christ shouldered the weight himself. He took it upon his shoulder as he went to the cross. And there that weight died. Your condemnation removed your wickedness. removed. That swarm of wickedness was captured and killed right there on the cross. We have been forgiven. We've been rescued from destruction. We are counted among the righteous who shall receive mercy by faith in Jesus Christ, who has done this great work on our behalf. And so now, because Christ has done this great work of reconciling, he calls you and me to be his ambassadors. To tell all people how to be reconciled to God so that they also can know mercy rather than judgment. Look out at the sea of humanity and see so many souls going to hell. Does that torment you or burden you? Does it make you want to stand up before God and say, save them? That's the prophetic pattern, in fact. The pattern that's set right here in Genesis 18. We see it all throughout the prophets. Isaiah chapter 55, we read this. Seek the Lord While he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. So when we see the wicked perishing, we don't blame God. No. His judgments are just. He is righteous in all of his ways. No, instead, we go to them. We intercede for them. We stand while we can between them and judgment. And so we tell them about how they can receive mercy rather than judgment. While there is yet time, we go to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And in so doing, we follow the model of Abraham, rescuing the righteous from the judgment that comes. And next week we will see it come to Sodom. And what we see happen in Sodom sets a pattern of justice forever. a, A sense, sorry, sets a pattern of judgment forever. And it is an echo, a shadow, a type of that great judgment still ahead. So let us not take these things lightly. And let us not say it's somebody else's job. You have been called as ambassadors and given a great commission. Father, help us to be faithful to that calling, to stand like Abraham did between you and the coming judgment for the sake of the righteous, of those that you will save, of those that you are calling and still need to hear, still need to hear about Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended. Help us to be faithful to this great calling. Thank you, Lord, for giving us such a a pattern of justice, of righteousness, of mercy. May it fill our hearts. May, May that type of justice beat within us, and may we long to see it in our land. Oh, God, do bring it to our land how we need it. And when we see injustice, Father, let us not turn our head away as they did in Sodom, Bless move toward it to right that wrong, to bring justice to the oppressed, to the suffering, to the grieving. Let us be clothed, not in word but in deed, in your righteousness. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.